Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast, the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. I am your host, Megan Cole, and this podcast is where you go to listen to conversations that I have with the authors whose books have been nominated for the annual prizes. This is the last episode of the 2019 shortlisted authors and illustrators. It's a little bit sad, but we will be saying goodbye to this wonderful list of creative folks and moving on to the next batch. It was kind of a short run because we got a late start, but in the coming year, we hope that we will be able to chat with every single person whose book appears on the shortlist. This means we'll be recruiting some new folks, so you will hear new voices on the podcast to help carry the load so we can hear from as many people as possible. And something you may have heard on the podcast is the voice of Sean Cranberry, the executive producer of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. He's bringing community voices to the podcast, interviewing those who are out in the BC and Yukon literary world doing great work such as putting on festivals, hosting readings, and generally helping those who are creating books but also those who love books and love to read books. So be sure to listen to those new episodes. Um, There's one up on the podcast airwaves, if we will call it that, with Sean and Jessica Johns. And they are chatting about the Growing Room Festival, which will be happening in Vancouver. So if you haven't heard that, be sure to check it out. Okay, enough blathering. I am going to get to the conversation that you are tuning in for. On this episode, I chat with Harley Rustad. Harley is the author of Big Lonely Doug. If you are not familiar with Big Lonely Doug, it is a big, lonely Douglas fir tree that sits in the middle of a clear cut on Vancouver Island near Port Renfrew. But this book is so much more than just the story of a Douglas fir tree. It touches on the history of logging and forestry in the province. Uh, It also touches on the birthplace of many provincial parks, such as the Carmina Valley, which we love so much. I spent a lot of time as a child backpacking there, so I really connected to those parts of the book. And it also uh, ties into the Indigenous relationships with these beautiful forests and the trees that grow there. This episode starts with Harley reading from his book and introducing one of the iconic characters of this story, Dennis Cronin, who is responsible for saving Big Lonely Doug. Uh, This section that I'm going to read is uh, about in the middle of the book, and it takes place just after uh, Dennis Cronin, who was uh, this logger who saved uh, Big Lonely Doug. Uh, so it takes place after he has saved the tree and uh, just as the, as the tree is being discovered. Dennis Cronin's big Douglas fir swayed quietly on its own in the middle of cut block 7190. Wind swirled, gray mist rolled off the Pacific to fill the valley and the sun rose and set, but the tree stood. One morning, the sun rose, rose behind Edinburgh Mountain, rays fragmenting through the trees that cap its ridge. In the valley below, near the mountain's base, a single tree stood in darkness. 
Across the Gordon River, sunlight hit the tops of the hills before slowly descending down the slopes. Then, after most of the hills across the river were warmed with an orange glow, the broken top of a towering tree in the middle of a clear cut was illuminated, like the lighting of a solitary candle. The sun climbed higher above the mountain until the entire great Douglas fir was gradually revealed from under the mountain's shadow. Along the rutted principal logging road that ran through the Gordon River Valley, T.J. Watt navigated his blue right-side drive Mitsubishi, Mitsubishi Delica, scanning the hills on either side through the windows. The tall van bumped this way and that over a road that in parts had been packed smooth by heavy logging trucks laden with timber, while other areas were washed out rough. The hillsides in the Gordon River Valley were a patchwork of quilt of cut blocks in, uh, in various stages of regrowth. Some hills appeared cartoonish, as if drawn in a child's scribble book, while canopies of replanted saplings growing in unison to form a single layer. From a distance, the second growth looked like, less like forest than fields of even-aged wheat. There were fresh cut blocks, too, with stumps and scraps of cedar and fir, bright orange and ochre as if still warm from the chainsaws and machines that had cut them down. There was little remaining in these patches, a few fragments and splinters left behind after the logs had been hauled away. And there was old growth, when Watt looked closely, clinging to the very tops of steep mountainsides or down the plunging bottom of a gorge. These were the inaccessible trees, too far or too difficult or too costly to access by a timber company. It was a cool day in February 2012 as Watt approached Avatar Grove. The forest he had helped protect was drawing tourists from afar. This time he kept going, he kept going past the grove, farther into the spiderweb of dirt logging roads that covers much of the southern half of Vancouver Island. Watt had grown used to seeing trees disappear. In his role as campaigner and photographer for the Ancient Forest Alliance, he had driven thousands of kilometers of logging roads, looking for the island's dwindling old-growth forests. Over the years, his expeditions to find groves untouched by commercial logging had forced him to delve deeper along the rough back roads of the island, up mountainsides and down valleys, in search of Canada's last great trees. More often than not, what Watt found was not intact forests, but fresh clearcuts. Driving along these roads felt like peering into a post-apocalyptic future, dry, dusty, barren, a wasteland of destruction. But every so often at the end of the road, he found a glimpse of a glimmering and verdant past, a remnant of a forest that had, had been left largely undisturbed for millennia. When he spotted the telltale signs of large ancient trees emerging from a canopy, he would park his vehicle alongside the dirt road and head into the tangled forest on foot. It was no easy job to traverse some of the densest forest ecosystems in Canada, where an hour can pass and you've advanced only a couple hundred meters, where undergrowth forms impenetrable barriers of bracken and bush, and where wild animals of tooth and antler lurk. But possibility compelled him further, uphill and over creek, in the hope of finding some of the largest trees in the world, placid leviathans waiting in the forest. With each kilometer he drove, and every ramble he took, the clock kept ticking, Logging companies continued to build new roads in a feverish bid to access new groves. Watt was trying to find them before a logger did. With each expedition into the bush, he could feel the race to locate and hopefully protect a small fraction of the province's arboreal legacy before it was permanently cut away. His goal was to bring back evidence, not only that clear-cutting old growth continues to occur, but that there are still forests that can be saved from the saw. If you aren't familiar with the roads and terrain here, it's easy to become lost. 
Take one wrong turn and you can drive for hours, switchbacking up and down hills before arriving at one of the thousands of dead ends that mark the extremes of a logging company's reach. But Watt was familiar with this area. He had explored the valley that follows the Gordon River dozens of times, and he knew where he was going, to a patch of forest at the base of Edinburgh Mountain that was part of the one of the largest continuous unprotected tracts of old-growth forest on the island. Located alongside the river, on a gentle slope, it was a prime candidate for producing big trees. Out of the window to his right, something caught his eye, the unmistakable orange of a fresh clear-cut. He knew the road would lead to, to the stumps, to where he had hoped to find trees. After turning onto a spur road, he was forced to stop after a locked gate, a clear sign that there was current logging activity in the area. Watt grabbed his camera and continued on foot, across a single-lane wooden bridge. A hundred feet below, the emerald green waters of the Gordon River thundered towards the Pacific Ocean, a few kilometers away. On either side of the road grew young alders, often the first species to regrow after a cut. The area had seen much logging over the years, with replanted forests filling in the blanks. Farther down the road, the smell of conifer grew stronger, of cut wood and glossy needles releasing their oils into the air. He rounded a bend, glanced to his right, and stopped. The patch of old growth he had come to hike through was gone. A bite had been taken out of the forest. It was a familiar feeling for Watt to return to photograph a lush ancient forest only to find it leveled. If you make enough trips off the island's main roads, these excursions begin to feel like surprise funerals. Watt often returned home from a weekend to, to compare his photographs of a recent clear-cut with images he had taken only months previous. It was jarring to witness, before and after, green and grey. Before him, this time, was a scene altogether different from any he had ever photographed. It wasn't a forest or a clear-cut, it wasn't an unblemished ecosystem or the scarred remains of an industrial harvest, but something he had never seen. What stood out to Watt wasn't the fact that yet another section of old-growth forest had been decimated, but that in the middle of, a clear, in the, middle of, the, of the cut block, a single tree remained standing. It was a Douglas fir, and it was enormous. The tree was limb, limbless from its base to 80% of its height, where a crooked crown of branches held dark needles that ruffled gently in the breeze. One of the branches, which bent down and then up like a flexed arm, could have been a tree in and of itself. He brought his camera to his eye. Through the viewfinder, he framed an image unlike any he had taken before. In the middle of the cut block, the giant fir stood like an obelisk in a desert. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I guess I want to start at the beginning. How did you find out about this story? So I came across the story, I think like a lot of people did uh, with a picture. Um, and a lot of people still do with a picture because it's such a jarring image of seeing uh, one of the biggest trees in the country standing completely on its own in the middle of, of a clear cut. Mm -hmm. So it was it was a couple years after um, the the forest had been cut, and I saw a picture, one of TJ's pictures, um, and uh, TJ is this uh, activist and photographer uh, for the Ancient Forest Alliance, which is an organization based out of Victoria that does a lot of work to protect the old growth forests, and and he had you know has spent a ton of time up there, and and this one image uh, was so emotional. I mean, it's. You see so many pictures of landscapes and of these forests and of mountains and of this beautiful BC coast. And this was something that had juxtaposition and contrast. And, you know, I, I like saying that it's an image that doesn't even need a caption. You mm -hmm. you get it when you see it. 
And for me, uh, very quickly, I realized that this story or this image was more than just an image. There was a story behind it. Uh, so a lot of questions quickly emerged. And, and the, the first big question, which kind of led me to write the initial article for The Walrus and then to write uh, the book, was, well, someone must have saved this tree. And most likely that was a logger. And who was that? And ultimately, why? And so those were the questions that kind of um, spurred me to try to find Dennis Cronin and interview him and to kind of dig into why he would have done this when every part of him uh, seemingly as a, as a logger who'd worked in the industry for 40 years uh, would be devoted to taking these trees down. Why did he save this one giant one? Mm-hmm. Was Dennis receptive to being included in this story or how did he feel about being a character in your article and book? So when I interviewed him, he was he was very receptive to talking and um, he was getting towards the end of his career and was and was thinking about retiring. And so he was happy to share his story. And I think he kind of got a, a bit of a kick out of the fact that this this one little act that he did, he wrapped this piece of green leaf tree ribbon around the base of this tree, that this one little action he did that he didn't really think that much about uh, turned into this media sensation and that everyone wanted to know what, what was behind it and people started to go and see it and it became this this uh, bit of a tourist destination. I think he got a bit of kick out of it. So he was he was very happy to share his story. And then tragically, just before the article was to be published, I was told that he uh, had cancer, which I didn't know about. And so I, I was about a week later, about a week after I was told um, he passed away. And so he actually never read the article and never read the book. And so my process of, you know, I had had these early interviews with him, um, but then my process became trying to flesh out the story and talking to his wife and talking to his colleagues and his friends and to try to kind of um, paint a fuller picture of who this person was. And and Lorraine, his his wife, was very, very open to talking and, and very happy that the story was being written and and I went with her, there's, you know, one of the last parts of the book, I go with her to go and see the tree and it had been the first time that she had gone back. And it was a, it was a pretty powerful moment for, for her and for me. What was it like the first time you saw the big lonely dog? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty powerful thing to see. I, I mean, I'm, was born on the coast. I'm from Salt Spring Island and grew up, you know, in these forests, hiking and camping and have seen, you know, my fair share of, of big trees and so I first saw it, I went with TJ and w- what we first did was went and hiked through what the activists are calling Eden Grove, which is the neighboring forest. And Big Lonely Doug's cut block was part of Eden Grove proper, and then half of it was cut away. And Eden is is spectacular. I mean, it's some of the, the most amazing forest I've ever walked through, including Carmana Valley. It's um, it's, it's really incredible. It has some enormous fir trees and cedar trees and bear dens. And, and so we walked through this forest and then emerged out of the green and, and tiptoed into the gray, uh, into this cut block and then walked through the cut block towards Big Lonely Doug. And, you know, you walk in the, in an old growth forest and it's, it's very quiet. You know, your, your footsteps kind of disappear. Um, there's not a lot of sound and, you know, you can't really make a lot of noise. There's moss under your foot. And then you step across into the cut block and you just, 
you know, you just feel like a kid falling everywhere and snap, snapping things and breaking things. And it's loud and it's hard to walk through. And I was just making my way over these logs and climbing over all this, these dead scraps that had been bleached in the sun towards this towering, towering tree that got bigger and bigger the closer I got to it. And it's, it's remarkable to stand under something that not only is, they think is about a thousand years old, but that is, you know, 20 stories tall, you know, the size of a 20 story tall apartment building. And, and so to stand under something like that, it's, it, it was an incredibly, incredibly touching moment to not only, you know, speak to the guy who saved it, but also see this, this incredible specimen of nature um, be protected. I think something that I enjoyed so much about the book is I grew up in Victoria and I hiked the Carmen Valley with my dad every summer for several years. And so this kind of history seems like something that is just second nature almost. But I really, it dove into the complexity of, I mean, forestry is one of those very loaded things out here on the coast. And to navigate those waters the way you did, I want, I'm curious about how you approached that and whether you felt a pressure to create a balanced story or whether you had a bias kind of going in. I'm, you know, had sounds like a pretty similar upbringing and and went to to Carmana Valley, but also was taken um, by a number of my teachers to logging protests. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was one on a big one on Salt Spring Island in uh, kind of the mid to late nineties. And I was taken down, our class was taken down and we got to see you know, that kind of confrontation, which I had never seen. Um, I'd heard about going to Carmana and I had heard a little bit about Clackwood Sound and studied it as, um, as a teenager, but I never really got to see the faces of these people on both sides, the the loggers and the activists and the environmentalists and the timber workers. And, you know, being kind of a, a hippie kid from Salt Spring Island, there's probably no secret where my bias is in terms of how we should be shifting our views away from these trees as a purely resource, as a purely timber resource. But I also didn't want to write a story only for the environmentalists. I didn't want to preach to the converted. I wanted to tell as balanced a story as I possibly could. And and that meant, you know, talking to as many loggers as I did activists. Um, it meant looking at the the tensions and the questions and the the pressure points within this as you said age-old conflict and really kind of picking them apart and i at least grew up with these images these very kind of classic images from 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 carmana protests and from clackwood sound of these kind of big bad burly loggers who were you know cutting down these trees and that's it and then these like peace-loving environmentalists and that's it it's obviously a lot more complicated and a lot more nuanced and a lot more gray than, than that image initially presents. And so my hope and my goal, my hope was, was to do a fair treatment on the, the ecosystem, but also on the economics of this resource in BC, which is hugely important. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. My my grandfather worked for Caden Forest Products for his entire his entire career, and there's so many people who who uh, are somehow tied to the timber industry in BC, and some of the some of the rhetoric that you hear is stop everything, you know, fully, and that's just not 
realistic. It's not going to happen. And so we have to come up with these much more creative solutions to start to shift the industry away from cutting down some of these absolutely spectacular trees that can actually do a lot more for a small economy like Port Renfrew, um, the town near uh, near Big Lonely Doug, that could do a lot more for these small communities than cutting them down and using that resource only once. And I think Port Renfrew is an amazing example of that. And so my hope is that I, I, I tried to talk to as many possible stakeholders, I guess, mm-hmm. um, as I could and, and, and try to paint a fair picture of, of this resource and of this, this conflict and, and of these, um, these different kind of uh, desires and, and forces. And, and I guess my next question kind of feeds off of that one. But I mean, the research was tremendous and the way that you wove it all together was, was fantastic. And I, I'm wondering how you, when you first kind of started navigating this story, how you led into the research and how you knew when to stop. Because I'm sure you could have told so much more because it is one of those very complex stories. But how you, how you figured out the research for this project? On the surface, it's it's a very simple story. It's a man, a logger, goes into a forest and he saves a tree, and the tree gets turned into an icon. And so the the narrative aspects of the story were fairly simple and uh, straightforward. What I found initially quite challenging was was having having to flesh that out and to find the the tributary narratives and the the background and the history and the other forces that essentially led to where this one tree ended up and where this one logger ended up. And these two these two things uh, coming together at the same time. And you're right, the 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 timber industry and the timber history in in BC and in Canada is uh, so deep. And there's so many different stories that I could have gotten into. and and I definitely went down some rabbit holes and that didn't make it into the book and I and just were too tangential and and I had to kind of scale it back and and really think about what does this one specific story say? And in some ways, you know, and I think one of the, one of the threads that I really latched onto was how trees are presented to the public as from the activist perspective, from the environmentalists, how they were marketed and for lack of a better words, sold to the public um, during the Carmana protests. And so I saw echoes of that again with Big Lonely Doug, you know, even the name evokes it personifies this tree. We're giving it human emotions. You know, everybody, you know, I still see on Instagram people going there to keep Doug company and to give Doug a hug. And these are, you know, so I was just fascinated by by the the forces and the movements that that are very successfully turning these trees into icons and bringing people into the forests for a very good reason. And so I knew that there were so many other ways, so many other pathways I could go down, but there were a couple large threads that I really tried to to stick as close as I could uh, I could to. But the yeah, the archives in Victoria were fantastic. I did just did a ton of reading, um, a lot of great books, and and um, and uh, talked to some wonderful people who gave lots of time to to talk about these things. And and how did you approach that? Because there's a lot of great characters in the book. I mean, Dennis obviously is is the most um, obvious one, but there's even historical characters that I thought you brought to life in a really interesting way, including the the botanist who first discovered kind of the mm-hmm. Douglas fir. How did you approach finding those those people that would kind of really anchor the story? 
I mean, I th- I, a lot of it was was I just did a huge amount of reading, and then I started to narrow it down to what I felt was relevant to to this one. I mean, really, to this one tree. And if I broke this tree down into all of its parts, it's a Douglas fir. It's on Vancouver Island. It was saved by a logger. It, it was interacted with by um, environmentalists. You know, so I, there's not a ton in the book that has to do with Western red cedar, which is a very, very important tree um, for the uh, First Nations uh, in in BC, um, and also for for the timber industry. It's a very, very important tree. But this was a Douglas fir, so I really needed to focus on the history of the Douglas fir, and and I had a, I honestly had a, a ton of fun digging into the history of of um, these, yeah, these Scottish botanists who were sent over to collect seeds and and cuttings and send them back to the botanical gardens in the UK. What I found was this this really kind of lovely story of, I mean, lovely, but also kind of tense story of these rival botanists and who ultimately uh, claimed the name of this tree from a colonial perspective. You know, there's this just this battle between the first Scottish guy who found him, Archibald Menzies, which the Latin name of the Douglas fir is named after, and then David Douglas, of course, the common name of the tree, you know, has he holds that legacy. And so I just, I found these these, that narrative and that kind of tension really fascinating. And because this tree was named by the activist Big Lonely Doug, uh, there was this, all this other fascinating history about how the Douglas fir got its Latin name. So I just, I, I found that really, really fascinating to dig into and, and really enjoyed that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, but again, it was, it was hard to, to pick and choose what I wanted to include in the book and really had to keep it, had to keep reminding myself, you know, this is a book about a Douglas fir on Vancouver Island. Um, and this is the ecosystem. This is the tree. These are the characters. And my hope was that I found enough characters and enough people who surrounded this tree and interacted with it, whether that was Archibald Menzies and David Douglas, who, you know, first documented these trees uh, as colonists to, you know, the indigenous people who've been working with, with uh, Douglas fir for a very long time, uh, all the way up through the loggers, the commercial loggers, and then the activists. And What I think I liked about the botanists in particular is that it seemed to me like these characters that you know, we talk about the explorers and who came to the West Coast, but I had never heard of botanists and, you know, the role they played and all that. And it seems so obvious, but I guess it's one of those details that doesn't get explored all that often. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it. I think it came from a place of wanting to understand the world, but it also had some uh, very complicated um, kind of colonial uh, like pressures and I, you know, they were going there and they were naming these trees. They were putting, you know, Western names onto them. You know, very few of these Latin names have any kind of indigenous roots to them. So that there's a lot of complications within, within them, but yeah, they're, they are fascinating characters and they were just, you know, out there collecting seeds. And there's this great part I read about David Douglas's story about how he was trying to collect Douglas fir cones from these, these giant trees which he thought were a different species from the shorter ones. And he shot the cones with his gun to try to get them down off the tree. And yeah, I mean, they were, they were wild, intrepid botanists. And for some reason, they're all Scottish. I, yeah. I don't know. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your new book, if it's not top secret. 
Uh, it's not top secret. No, um, it's so it's also based on an article I wrote um, for Outside Magazine. It's slightly different from uh, the first one, but it's a true story about this American backpacker who goes to India on a kind of spiritual journey and uh, very tragically ends up disappearing uh, completely without a trace in this remote Himalayan uh, valley where about two dozen other foreign backpackers have mysteriously disappeared over the past couple decades. It's following this one man's story uh, that ultimately led him to India, but also stepping back to look at India as a spiritual destination that, as it has existed for, for centuries. Mm-hmm. And the pull that, that exists in a lot of people in the West to go to India to find enlightenment or to find themselves or to find, you know, the meaning of life or, or what have you. So it's a slightly different book, but it's, um, it's been, you know, it has its own, its own kind of challenges. Um, but it's, uh, it's got a pretty compelling narrative, I think, um, lots of twists and turns and it's true crime. So that's always, um, that's always interesting. Yeah. What was the research like for that? I'm sure you've had to go to India a few times to immerse yourself. So I've spent uh, about a couple years in India in total. I was did about a year uh, working for Stephanie Nolan, who at that time was the Globe and Mail's South Asia correspondent based in Delhi, and then was working up in Nepal for a little bit. Um, And then when I came across this story uh, in it was a, it was about a, f- a few months after um, this American had disappeared, um, and I pitched the story, and then I, I went there again for a couple weeks to the valley, and did some reporting, and I went back this summer for about a month to do more reporting for the book, and then uh, but a lot of it has been uh, talking to people in the U.S. and other people that he met on his travels to try to kind of fill in this this narrative and this story and this background, but. Yeah, reporting in India can has its own set of challenges and it its own set of kind of fears, especially in a valley that has had has a pretty um, dark history. Well, I'm interested to read it. <laughs> I love true crime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm working on it right now. That's that's my my big project right now. Yeah. Thanks so much to Harley for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks so much to all of the 2019 authors and illustrators who joined me on the podcast. It was such an honor to be able to chat with all of you and to learn more about the work you do and the books that landed you on the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. And I'm so excited to finally find out who will be on the 2020 shortlist. I have a list in my head of people who I kind of think might be on the list, but I'm not going to guess. I'm just going to wait and be surprised. And I can't wait to start uh, having conversations with those who will be up for this year's prizes. If you want to find out who makes the cut, be sure to visit the BC and Yukon Book Prizes website and follow the BC and Yukon Book Prizes on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook because I'm sure all the announcements will be broadcasted far and wide on the social medias and and the website. So until next time, I hope you enjoy some great books, 
be sure to visit that website. Maybe make your own lists of who you think should win the prizes this year. Make it like an Oscar party. I don't know. Um, I've read some great books by BC authors that I hope make the list, but there's so many. So how do you choose? It's like Sophie's Choice. And luckily that wasn't my job. So until next time, stay cozy, enjoy some books, and we will meet you here soon.